0: You need Indeed.
1: Is
2: Christian McCaffrey the most important player in fantasy football again? That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at BenGretsch.Subs.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all his great work over at Is. We're going to break down thursday night football as well and we'll probably start there but we got an absolute blockbuster of a trade i don't think the 101 in any fantasy draft i don't think i ever remember them being traded in season we've you know only started to have important in-season trades over these last couple of years the idea that a guy that was that you know drafted that high for fantasy and is that valuable even as he hasn't started like the most valuable player in fantasy, the idea that he could get dealt in season, the impact on both rosters, the impact on him is just so fascinating,
1: right? There are a ton of really cool parts to this. I got actually a text from you late last night after I'd been doing some other things and then caught up, watched the Thursday night game about it. And you mentioned doing a live reaction show. We did a live reaction show with some of the chiefs news. I think the Tyree kill trade, right? this summer. And so as soon as I saw it, I'm like, did Christian McCaffrey get traded to the Kansas city chiefs? Because the Kansas city chiefs would be the perfect fit. And they're the team that needed Christian McCaffrey the most. Obviously there were some contractual elements here, but so then when I look up and find this, the the 49ers, it was a real gut punch. So you said, you said starting from the perspective of like trying to get my air back from having thought maybe it was.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you sent me a
2: message last night that said, 49ers is a pretty big bummer. Although I guess Chiefs were always a long shot. I just wrote an article. I woke up this morning. I've been bouncing off the wall since this trade, and I wrote an article at the at the Stealing Signal Substack that was called CMC is the most important player in fantasy again. And I tried to lay out that case. I'll explain some of that case on the show. But more importantly, I have not heard any of your thoughts other than that the 49ers is kind of a bummer from from last night really, really interested to talk through it with you and you're probably going to have to play
1: devil's advocate a little bit or maybe you just hate this for him. I don't know. I I don't hate it, but I'm going to throw up some of what I think the argument's going around. Obviously, I don't have a lot of interaction with the various interwebs, but you've already mentioned to me and I would just assume that some of the sort of straightforward things that people are concerned about would be the overall volume, the past volume, the impact on some of the other players, if you don't care as directly about Christian McCaffrey, obviously you had to have an early pick. You mentioned that this is, I'm mean, really the only time we can remember where someone who was drafted this early in fantasy drafts would have been moved. But this was always like vaguely potentially in the cards when you consider how bad the Panthers were. And the fact that he could have been in the mix for the 101 and did have a time period where he was actually the pretty clear 101 before like fading a little bit. Down the stretch again, or at least I was seeing him as the clear one on one in my drafts. I think that the ADP always had, even when it got the closest, that Jonathan Taylor had just like the tiniest fraction ahead. But it was also the reason that Cooper Cup and Justin Jefferson were going ahead of McCaffrey at times. And we've watched how that has played out. We talked about who we thought our top two picks in 2023 would be. And our argument there was definitely that the wide receivers could come through and justify that. I mean, I think that to this point, the wide receivers had definitely justified being selected ahead of Taylor and McCaffrey because the Panthers were so bad, though. Right. As the point. That was the whole thing.
2: Chris McCaffrey, we talk about as the reincarnation of Marshall Falk, but like the Panthers were the fly in the ointment of his fantasy profile. That was the whole thing. He's no longer on that team. John, let's talk about Thursday Night Football, though, before we get too deep into Christian McCaffrey, because there was a lot of fun stuff. You had some interesting thoughts as we were just getting ready to start. Really excited to see Eno Benjamin have the great game. We've been drafting him for three years. You've been a a huge Eno Benjamin believer. And and really, the guy we should shout out is Blair Andrews, who's done great great work on the the value of the receiving work as a, you know, what is it, a percentage of the team
1: total yardage or total pass
2: attempts or something, right? But like,
1: yeah, so it's his passing role there. And so Blair does the running back dominator rankings every season as part of our prospect coverage. You know, a guy who jumps out there. I mean, it's hard for me, and I know that listeners aren't interested in that much more of this, but almost everything kind of wraps back around to Clyde Edwards-Alaire, whether it's the Jonathan Taylor thing, a potential Christian McCaffrey trait, or this deal with Benjamin, where Benjamin is essentially exactly Edwards-Alaire, except he was better earlier in college and on a lesser team. So when you're looking at some of the things that maybe the Chiefs were hoping to get from Edwards alar when they drafted him in the first round, I mean, those are things we can actually not necessarily expect to get, but definitely there were scenarios where the Cardinals would eventually get those things from Benjamin. We saw that last night, and it was really cool. And even though there's a huge split here in terms of yards per carry between Benjamin and Keontae Ingram, Ingram also looked good. Yes. Ingram, well,
2: he had a couple moments, but he also had... I mean, the the box score wasn't great. He had a couple of flashy moments, a nice play in the passing game, 24-yard gain. The little run to the pylon where he ended up getting down at the one was a nice little kick outside and and run. (coughs) Scored the short touchdown. And It looked like he was going to vulture Benjamin. But, I mean, he ran nine times for 14 yards. He he lost like five yards on that one goal line play where Kyler sort of fumbled the
1: snap and then just like gave it to him. and, And he had nowhere to go. Exactly. Either one of these guys could have actually had more in terms of a touchdown perspective because they have a play there where Benjamin is going to score and they don't, someone is responsible for not getting the play in correctly. And you see Benjamin actually turn, try and make the, the timeout call. Kyler goes to the sideline and is just laying into Kingsbury uh, like you wouldn't believe. They go back out there and it's a different personnel package and Ingram scores. So you lose the Benjamin potential touchdown there. And then later in the game, like you mentioned, uh, they have one that's going to be a second Ingram touchdown. And instead you have the bad snap and then it ends up being Greg Dorsey. And even the play before that,
2: Ingram getting down to the one and then and then the bad snap and all that. But Benjamin looked really good. Um, I, I, I go back to his prospect profile because obviously he's been in the league for a few years. We have not seen a lot out of him. It was a seventh-round pick, the dominant rating stat was was what was so exciting about Benjamin he was good in all facets a, a three down player you know had that receiving profile on top of being a heavy usage runner in in the in the rushing game has the size has has what you want
1: and another little interesting kind of comp there i mean Aaron Jones plays above even his tested athleticism but you know Clyde edwards alaire and Aaron Jones in our workout explorer those three guys come up as the most other players to each other, and so if you're thinking about Benjamin as potentially a discount version or extreme sort of arbitrage version of a player who has scored a lot of points and is electric, Aaron Jones would be the guy from an athletic perspective that he's pretty similar to. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I say he has size. He's not a huge back, but he's not sub 200 pounds. When you
2: used to do the profile one, profile two, profile three backs, I mean, he fits right into that profile two category that we're we're hoping for, low end. But I mean, McCaffrey, another player who's in that 200 and 210 pound range, there are some backs that can, you know, have a good solid three down roll in that, in that range. And, and his production profile suggested he could, we were excited this offseason, just about the simple fact that as a seventh round pick, he had stuck around for two off season, was still on the, on the roster. That's a hard thing to do. He's getting the opportunity. Now he did not perform particularly well last week. People were very bummed about that. Uh, I, I wrote that that was noise and, and stealing signals that, you know, the role that he had, he was likely to, to be better. If he got another opportunity, he did. And, and it was great to see that Rondell Moore, not as exciting to see another guy. We'd like Deandre Hopkins back 14 targets, 10 catches. I mean, I guess I was excited to see that Zach Ertz wasn't as involved in the passing game. <laughs> and so it was, it was nice to see, you know, Hopkins be very involved. They didn't throw a ton, only 29 passes. The two pick sixes kind of impacted the, the game flow and, and, what was going to happen with the the whole Arizona passing attack on more. The really interesting note was how much he played outside. Greg Dortch played a lot. They just traded for Robbie Anderson, obviously not up to speed on a short week, got a few snaps. And when he was in the game, Rondell did kick back into the slot when uh, Dortch was out there and Dortch played a lot more. And I mean, Dortch great starts of the year scores again here, but only had one target and did run a lot of routes in this game. It's not like, Dortch is suddenly a big threat to Rondale either. But when, when Dorch was in the game, he was playing in the slot and they were kicking more outside. more even gets an end zone fade that the Twitter had a lot of fun with, because why are you throwing an end zone fade to a 5-7 guy? But we've comped him to, to Steve Smith. And I was sitting there thinking, I mean, Steve Smith used to get a lot
1: of end zone fades. Like if you get wide open, you get wide open. You get wide open. I mean, the key is that you have to be open. And we've seen this already with Jahan Dotson, who has, I mean, a little bigger guy, obviously, than Rondell Moore, but has scored repeatedly in the end zone. He's gotten wide open in the end zone. That was a play there I where mean, Moore is wide open. He gets a phantom offensive pass interference called on him. One of the things that's really weird is that anytime the defensive backs are holding, 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 and you kind of play through it, the commentators say, that's good, and let him play. As soon as the offensive guy is... Joining in and the pushing, everyone seems to think that's offensive pass interference. I mean, you got to let it go both ways. And one of the things about Rondell Moore is that he is short, but he also does have that stockiness, the strength, you know, maybe not to a Steve Smith level. I mean, Steve Smith could also go up and basically levitate. But, you know, you look at Rondell Moore profile well, and you see a 40-inch vertical as well. I mean, he gets wide open here, not because of any kind of cheating, although that was called. If he hadn't dropped this pass, it would still not have counted. But he just doesn't catch the ball you got to catch the ball when you get wide open in the end zone there. Not ideal. I
2: mean, yeah, I I always see things through rose-colored glasses, but he he ends up catching it. He bobbles it. He ends up catching it out of bounds. If he catches it cleanly, he did a really good job getting his feet in and all of those things. I didn't think it was a push-off either, but, you know, we're we're biased. I did see Hopkins getting really physical with his hands throughout the game, which is something he's done a lot. I didn't think he looked particularly – fast or explosive in this game in his first game back but he's so savvy I would have called a couple of plays pass interference offensive pass interference on him before the one on Rondell there was a couple where I felt like he got some late separation with his arms more than his athleticism but that's something he's going to be able to do and and it was good to see him get a lot of volume right away catch a lot of passes if, if you have him you're obviously excited to see him get 14 targets when they throw 29 passes. That's part of the Rondell Moore element is Hopkins was back and they they get, got him almost a 50% target share.
1: Don't think that can carry over for a full season. That would be some kind of a record. It would be, but you go through and you look at DeAndre Hopkins through the years and he has that string of top five wide receiver finishes, multiple wide receiver one finishes. He's going to be in the 30% target share range during those seasons. He wasn't anywhere close to that last year. And so even before the injuries down the stretch and even before the suspension to start this year, one of the things that I've talked about is that I have some exposure to Hopkins. I, I mean, he's one of my favorite players. I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan. So trying to like balance hope and the potential concerns. I mean, he could come back and be a little bit closer to some of these guys who are done than we want him to be. And I completely agreed with you in terms of what he looked like last night. Not someone who is showing much speed, but... I mean, Hopkins is one of these guys, for a player who has such great length and such an ability to catch the ball when it's anywhere close to him, he also has that suddenness. It's a little bit of the Devontae Adams element where, I mean, are those guys going to run 50 yards straight down the field and get wide open? I mean, obviously not, but they're open when they're covered. And they also play in a way that gives the quarterback confidence. You mentioned some of like the tiny little offensive pass interference kinds of things. You know, those are elements where you're keeping the defender from getting in the position he wants to be in to knock the ball away or to intercept the ball. You're also creating a little space for yourself at the end of the route when you expect the ball to be there. He also has, I mean, just he runs the routes at speeds to where when he needs to make the move to get open because he knows the ball is going to come then that's where he shows off the quickness where until that point, it's almost like he's walking. You mentioned that the little push-offs, and it's kind of funny too, because one of the plays early on where you could tell he was trying to get a defensive pass interference call, and I originally thought it was probably defensive pass interference, it was one where in the middle of the route, he'd been kind of pushing off and, and trying to get clear, and then when he couldn't, he actually sort of grabbed the guy and pulled him to him and then like shuttles down the field a little bit with him and looks at the, to the official like, are gonna call holding even though i'm the guy who, <laughs> who yeah, has i wrapped pulled up on top of me <laughs> yeah so i mean you're gonna get some veteran savvy there and yeah it was cool to see obviously it helped the cardinals it was frustrating from a Rondell more perspective in terms of how much it stomped on his potential targets but it wasn't just him i mean you mentioned that it absolutely crushed zach Ertz, who more or less went out of this game. We don't have any exposure to Zach Ertz. And so from a fantasy perspective, it would be great for us if he doesn't factor in the rest of the way. I, ben, for me, the kind of long-term here and the fantasy playoff version of this team, I think is interesting. We do have some exposure to Kyler Murray, both in dynasty and in redraft. Again, not a huge game for him because of those two pick sixes that changed the second half game script. But I mean, There's never really been a point where the Cardinals have actually gotten it going with Cliff and Kyler the way that you would really want to see. And when they get somebody back like Hopkins, they lose Marquise Brown. So you don't get to see those two guys together, which I think everybody was excited for. But we do now have a potential scenario At the end of the season where they could have brown and robbie anderson even if that's just catching a couple of long passes every once in a while i mean those you know extra 60 yard touchdown pass on murray even if it was just once during the fantasy playoffs that really helps his scoring and still rondell moore one of the most electric athletes in the nfl and still potentially going to emerge they could have four guys that really stress the defense at that point do you have any optimism that Kingsbury will be able to call an offense that is dynamic and they can play a little bit up-tempo like they'd like to do and go scorched earth? Or is it just going to be different guys kind of alternating who gets to play? And mostly we'll have these three and outs and we'll have these, you know, you get to the 40 and can't execute the first down and it's just frustration continued. I think I, think I have optimism. We've seen a
2: lot of this from Arizona over the last – Basically, calendar year because at this point last year, Kyler Murray was looking like an MVP candidate, and the year before that, he was even better from a fantasy perspective. Yes, um, in 2020, he had, had a fantastic year. Early 2021, his passing numbers really took off through the first seven games last year. Kyler Murray was completing th- 73.5% of his passes, 286 yards per game, two and a half touchdowns per game, 0.7 TDs, seven. 17 to five TD to INT rate, basically any other, whatever. I mean, what numbers do you want to look at? But they're, they're, they were all very, very good. All the players were good. I mean, I, I the reason I remember this so well is like, this was before Zach Ertz, but AJ Green was looking fantastic, right? He was looking efficient. It was like, Kyler Murray's making you look efficient. DeAndre Hopkins was looking very efficient. Christian Kirk was hitting pretty hard early last year. Got himself a big contract. Got himself a big contract in part because of that stretch. And and it was. Look, you have Hopkins and Kirk. And so, like, even just maybe A.J. Green was a little bit spryer early in the season than he than he came to be later in the year. Harder for an older guy to play a full NFL season. Whatever. Whatever you want to, you know, however you want to say that. But I feel like the the weapons were stronger at that point. Late in the year, he was throwing Antoine Wesley and A.J. Green. And they weren't even really using Rondell Moore. Kirk was his number one. And then he had, you know, Green and Wesley and Ertz. And it's like, er- Ertz is just a guy that runs curls. Like, he doesn't add anything to your passing game. When they get everyone active, and and we're talking about the postseason, we're talking about Hopkins and Marquise Brown on the outside, Rondell Moore in the slot, and hopefully he can start to earn some targets and, and provide some explosiveness to their offense. But obviously Brown has looked good until his injury. And Hopkins doesn't have to be, like, the sole guy, but can obviously add a lot. And then you have Ertz as sort of, like, the fourth dude, which is, like, fine, whatever, he can do that. But I think you mean Trey McBride.
1: Hopefully it's Trey McBride. We've still been talking about that. I just have no faith that we're going to see that. There was one Trey McBride sliding last night. Yeah, that's what we're getting. I know he played at least one snap. We're getting getting a few snaps a game. That's what we're getting. And we're going to like it.
2: Um, That's what we got with Ronald Moore last year. But this year, it's very clear that Ronald Moore is going to play. And I think that, you know, outside the targets and some of that stuff not being encouraging, that was encouraging on Thursday night football was that he was kicking outside inside. He's, he's Christian Kirk from last year where they're going to find a way to get him into the three receiver set, no matter who's on the field. I think when Marquise Brown's back, I mean, maybe it's complicated by Robbie Anderson, but I think when Marquise Brown's back, you're going to see those three guys and, and Anderson probably not playing a lot until then. I mean, starting basically next week, you should see Anderson kind of playing the Marquise Brown role, which still makes their three receiver set better than anything we've had. I mean, I think this could pick up relatively quickly just because I do think the offense is, is limiting, but it's also it's it's more limiting when you also don't have talent, right? It's easier to win with a simple offensive scheme when you have talent, when you have DeAndre Hopkins and Rondell Moore and even Robbie Anderson, who I don't think is particularly good at this point. I don't expect him to suddenly be the early career Robbie Anderson as a deep threat, but
1: should provide something and more than AJ Green has provided. And you talk about the, the talent there. And, In some ways, the Arizona offense has been a little bit more under the microscope because of all of the things with, you know, did Kingsbury ever deserve to get this job? With the questions around Kyler, with his height, you know, can he be the elite passer to go with that rushing ability? (laughs) The contract, which was so controversial in the offseason. You get more focus on this Cardinals team, especially after how they finished off last season they focus on their struggles when, as we talked about in our first two shows of the week, the entire NFL is struggling, and the Cardinals haven't had the talent to address some of these things. When you look at almost a full season now, second half of last year, first half of this year, I'm excited that they're going to come that, out of it. And that exactly ties to like when I'm they've saying.
2: played. That that ties to when they've played poorly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's when they've been bad. On New Orleans' side, another guy who had 14 targets, Chris Olave, You mentioned, I remember, right after Week One that he was sort of a buy. Bi- I want to say you had him as a buy high or a buy low. And I I I pointed it out on one of our shows because it was like didn't feel the same way. I felt like with Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry really early. I think it was right after week one, that it wasn't promising for Alave, basically. Your immediate take was that the Thomas and Jarvis sort of looked done, and that Alave was was the juice. I think you nailed that. This is a guy that we didn't take a lot of, we didn't love his price. It was tough with Garrett Wilson going after him. I think Garrett Wilson has hit pretty, pretty solidly. I didn't like this new Orleans team. And I think that was pretty accurate too. They have not been particularly interesting offensively other than, you know, a little bit for Taysom Hill here and there. It's been pretty bad for Alvin Kamara. He still, I don't think has scored a touchdown this year. The other receivers have not even been healthy, which has played into this, but Chris Alave, other than Taysom Hill and Chris Alave, Chris Olave has carved out a role very clearly and has been someone who's sort of elevated things. He's getting open constantly. He looks really good. He looks very capable at the NFL level already. Of you know, There's a couple plays where there's one they highlighted on the broadcast where sort of broke his route off one way, saw I think Andy Dalton rolling out of the pocket the other way, comes back. You know sees that and moves to space the direction Dalton's moving. It's just a it's a veteran play, right? That you don't typically see from rookies. This is what the people who really love the lava said he would be. And I, I want to give a hat tip to them. My concern was stuff with like the targets product run falling throughout his college career and being a four-year guy, and as a even as a fourth-year senior, having a lower targets per out run than his sophomore and junior years as his competition got stronger in college, as Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigbo were involved in the Ohio State offense. I think the answer is probably just that Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave are both elite, and maybe JSN will prove to be as well someday when he's in the NFL. But Wilson looked fantastic, you know, with Joe Flacco. It's been a little different with the Jets. I don't think like process-wise, with where he was priced in drafts, it was particularly wrong to not be super in on him and to be in on Garrett Wilson. But it is a little bit tough, you know, as I'm talking through this. We we take. Basically every rookie, and Alava is one that we didn't take a lot of, and and he looks like like the best right now of all the rookies for fantasy value for the rest of the way, and he looks good. Like it's not just fantasy value to be clear. I mean, early on the air yards, I was calling on prayer yards. It, I didn't think there was a lot there. He started to do a lot more in the intermediate range, and he looks very very good.
1: Yeah, I mean, you combine the air yard profile with the ability to get open everywhere. Talk about the 14 targets in this game. Some of that is, again, driven by the game script. Andy Dalton throws 47 times. They definitely did not go into this game having that as their preferred way to try and win it, and they did not win it. But uh, I mean, especially when you're competing with guys like Kevin White, who has a 64-yard catch-and-run in this game with Marquez Callaway, who had a really rough game. I mean, even Olave, there were some plays that he left on the field here only catches 50% of his targets. There were a couple of plays where if you're not playing him, you're like, man, if, if he gets that one, then, I mean, you're starting to look at a 30-point game and he could bury you on Thursday night football. He does look very good, though. He looks pro-ready, as people said. You mentioned Alvin Kamara. He also gets nine targets, catches seven of them, goes over fifty, uh, goes over 100 yards from scrimmage, 56 of which were in the air. It seems like it's going to more or less still work out for him. But if you're playing Tyson Hill, you're frustrated that he only gets that one really high value touch that he does score on. If you're playing Alan Kamara, you're like, just let Kamara run that play and score the touchdown. So it depends on what your incentives are. The Saints and and Andy Dalton competed pretty well, put up some good points for some of their key players within the context of how this game developed. It'll be interesting to see where the Saints go now. I've argued that Andy Dalton is a better NFL quarterback than Jameis Winston. And again, it's going to depend a little bit on which players you need to do well, whether you prefer it to be Winston or Dalton going forward. Yeah, the interceptions, I
2: suspect, will not help him. One was very clearly not on him. I mean, it was just right off the hands of, I think it was Traquan Smith, and, and then it intercepted the first one and Callaway, deflected right think, to the, right? What's that? Callaway. Maybe it was Cowboy, yeah, but deflected right to the defender who's trailing by, like, three yards. I mean, he's beat on the inside run uh, route. The other two, are not good passes. First one in the end zone was not a good one. The third one was not a good one, <laughs> which was another pick six. A couple of bad interceptions for him. But I thought otherwise he did play a pretty solid game. It's just, you know, those things stick out, and, and I imagine when Jameis is healthy, those things are going to, Help paint the case that the guy they already had as their starter will will potentially be back starting.
1: We'll see. But let's talk about
2: Christian, yeah, let's get to
1: the main event. Christian McCaffrey, despite what feels like an extremely disappointing season for Christian McCaffrey, he's obviously still doing much better than Jonathan Taylor. Hard to believe he is the r b four. Through these first six weeks, he still has put you in a difficult situation as a fantasy manager. If you drafted him at the 101 at the 102, with what some of the other players behind him are doing, now we get to see what happens in San Francisco.
2: Is one tenth of a point per game behind Nick Chubb so far. He scored three touchdowns. Chubb has scored seven. There in PPR. Chubb is 19.8 points per game. McCaffrey's 19.7. He's 0.7 points per game behind Saquon, who's at 20.4. And again, the touchdowns are always going to drive this on smaller samples. Saquon only has four, so he's another guy who has you know not had as many TDs. Eckler is certainly the the RB one. Some of that has just been driven by the receptions over the last couple of weeks. It's been interesting that the ways that they've started to actually incorporate McCaffrey in the passing game in Carolina, or the ways they did before they traded him, were just a lot of like straightforward screenplays. His A dot right now is actually to the negative. It's the first time in his career he's ever had a negative A dot. At times, he's had an ADOT over one, which you're going to have a lot of catches around the line of scrimmage and some behind the line of scrimmage when you are a running back. But when you have the ADOT get up over one or, or even get close to two in some cases, but that's not even very common. What that indicates is you're running some routes down the field. You're, you're getting some air yards. You're getting some five air yards plays, which you know McCaffrey's always run those option routes that we love to talk about where he takes on a linebacker. He's so good. I mean, I I compared him in my article this morning to like prime Wes Welker, which is a little bit absurd because I went back and looked at at, uh, Welker's stats and he was a top 10 wide receiver in PPR in five of six seasons for a stretch there. I mean, he was so good in that Patriots offense. This trade is really interesting from a fantasy perspective because people immediately want to think, I mean, it, it, I, I wrote about this today, but I thought it was so fun that it happened on Thursday Night Football when everybody's on Twitter and everybody is going to share their immediate thoughts And other than Sean. Sean's the one person that was not on Twitter. Uh, Everyone's going to share their immediate thoughts. You're going to get a really good look at what their process is in real time, how they are interpreting this information. I got a little bit exuberant. I'm not... Necessarily backing down from that, but maybe I made it seem with my Twitter reactions like it was a little bit more of a certainty. My stance is this creates scenarios where McCaffrey can be so good. The running back scoring is down. I mean, like McCaffrey hasn't even been that good yet. And I just mentioned he's less than a point per game away from the RB2 spot right now. There are some, like, we talk about Marshall Falk, right? When we talk about McCaffrey's skill set, we, I, I, Think of him in the mold of these elite slot receivers of of all time. I mean, Welker in many ways, uh, you know, a precursor to what Cooper Cup is these days. And I, I don't think McCaffrey is as good as Cooper Cup as a receiver. But like you're talking about a player, that like when he came to Carolina, one of the mistakes I made early in his career was Cam Newton is a mobile quarterback who doesn't throw to his running backs. Well, we learned really quickly that Christian McCaffrey made himself Cam Newton's best target his favorite target, because even though a lot of running backs are just the check down on a lot of passing plays, McCaffrey is one of the rare ones that is like a target earner at running back. And especially if you're using him in routes where he can be out and in in space. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about with Shanahan is does he split him into the slot a little bit? Does he get him out running? I mean, there's the immediate tie-ins to the old Mike Shanahan teams and, and they had Ed McCaffrey and Christian McCaffrey as a kid, there's pictures of him with Kyle Shanahan when Kyle Shanahan was you know around college time for him and, and in that Denver Broncos family Ed McCaffrey was a very good receiver is the point <laughs> so Kyle, Kyle Shanahan's very aware of this receipt I mean you get it you, you you get into holes assuming rational coaching 49ers have done a lot of wonky stuff with draft capital so like even though part of me is like they just traded a second a third a fourth and a fifth they traded like a full a full you know, years worth of of draft picks other than a first round pick basically to get him. And so when you put in that much draft capital into a player, you're obviously planning to use him at the same time. If there's any team that has shown that they don't give a crap about how they use their draft capital, it is the 49ers with their multiple third round pick running backs that they've barely played over the last couple of years. They just now are basically admitting that Tyrion Davis price is another wasted third round pick by trading for a running back. And they did that last year with Trey Sermon. I mean, from a real football perspective, Kyle Shanahan has now sunk four day two picks into the running back position in 18 months, which is not ideal, especially when your system can generate running back production from just Yeah, that's
1: the, the part that is so weird is that they're able to get this. But I think that the cool thing here is that even a team where you have to believe that the coaching staff thinks they can do it with other guys is saying, this is a player who is unique and is extremely valuable. When you see that price for the trade, the first thing that pops out to me is that this is a massive steal for the 49ers because you have a former top 10 pick who's hit in a huge way and has become the greatest weapon at running back in the NFL to the point that the things that you're talking about are exactly right and Make him someone that you have to think about in terms of a wide receiver and and how it affects the game, not as a running back. And so when folks are like, running backs don't matter, running backs don't matter. You have to think of him as a wide receiver. That's the way that you look at it. That's the reason the Chiefs needed to go after him. That's the reason why if the Chiefs are thinking, okay, I mean, number one, you have to be able to do all the parts. I'm not saying the Chiefs really had the option, but if you're thinking receivers are really our problem, which for the Chiefs, both positions are a problem. Signing Odell Beckham for the reality playoffs is nothing like what you would get from adding Christian McCaffrey. So a two, three, four, five for a guy who is going to be one of the best wide receivers in the NFL—that's a huge steal. And it's—it's it's a team that already has a lot of weapons, saying we want to get stronger, as opposed to the teams sitting back and saying, we have weapons, we don't need to make this move. If you have the potential for a move to get better you you do it, that's one of the things that we've seen the Rams do over the last several years. Hasn't always worked, but last year it paid off in a Super Bowl championship. And nobody that they've added is remotely like Christian McCaffrey. The reaction on Twitter, especially from 49ers
2: fans that I saw, and ones that are you know analytically inclined, was that they massively overpaid and it was frustration it's a lot of picks it's a lot of potential players on rookie contracts that are are an important part of the equation you need your picks i i guess i was pretty indifferent from a real nfl standpoint i i was not that extreme i do think it's hilarious when you look at like the overall amount of picks they've sunk into the running back position since the 2021 draft in april 18 months ago
1: Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: But this individual trade in and of itself is, I mean, he was just going to use that third round pick on another running back next year anyway. So it's like you traded a two and a third round pick that you're probably going to waste anyway. And I, I know that's not the way to think about it, but it's, it, you know, it's kind of similar how we're talking about the, the Seahawks trade a while back. Christian McCaffrey, if they traded him to just plug-and-play him as they've been playing Jeff Wilson, then I understand the concerns that that this was an overpay. I'm with you where this trade, I think, is a clear indication. It's not, they, it's not that they weren't getting anything out of the running game. It's that we need more firepower still on our offense, even though we have Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle. Jimmy Garoppolo's back there. He's kind of a caretaker. We think our defense is really high level. I think everybody agrees that the 49ers defense looks like one of the best in the NFL right now. They, I think, are going out and acquiring someone that's going to impact the way that their offense exists, right? And I made the case in my article that if you're just looking at McCaffrey and comparing him to the San Francisco running backs receiving roles over the last several years, that you're doing it wrong that that's actually probably a mistake, that there is data that suggests that's wrong. The the Cam Newton stuff was, I made that mistake with Cam Newton. Let me throw up
1: the sort of straightforward or surface argument against, not necessarily the trade, but against Christian McCaffrey as a home run in San Francisco. And then we can kind of both discuss whether or not we think that's right. So in terms of going back and looking through this, I thought it was kind of interesting to try and sometimes when you put all the numbers together, it'll hide some things. It's interesting to see the individual season. So just very quickly, 2021. And in this, I've removed all the fullback targets because I mean, maybe all the fullback targets will also go to McCaffrey, but I didn't want to include those because it's such a sort of unique and specific part of the Shanahan offense. I'll let you finish, but we talked about this. I believe in this,
2: and we talked about this. with. It was a big case for me about Miami's running backs and has been in Stealing Signals all year because Mike McDaniels went over there and then went and uh, acquired Alec Ingold from the Raiders and signed him to a really big fullback deal. And I was like, I mean, this is going to impact the running back routes over here because of the way that this offense is going to operate like San Francisco's. The fullback stuff is separate. I agree. But anyway, go ahead.
1: So I pulled these these numbers up quickly before – the show. If I missed on any specific season, but 2021, 57 running back targets. Hasty leads with 29. 2020, 106, a pretty decent number. McKinnon leads with 46. 2019, 74 running back targets. Tevin Coleman leads with 30. 2018, you're down at 66 running back targets. 31 for breeda and I should say these are from his head coaching and then his offensive coordinator positions, which he's had for several teams. 2017. 124 running back targets, and 88 to Carlos Hyde. That's an interesting one that jumps out. 2016, 105, 65 for Devontae Freeman. 2015 is that season that we actually referenced on a previous show where Devontae Freeman is the RB1 in 2015. He has 97 of the 121 running back targets. 2014, 48. Isaiah Crow leads with 14, sort of a humorous one. 2013, 55. Roy Hulu, 42. 2012 56 total Evan Royster 23 2011 97 Hulu again 59 2010 99 Keelan Williams 58 I didn't even remember that name went back and kind of checked his profile uh, he finished his NFL career with fewer than 1,000 yards from scrimmage and then 20 2009 155 for Slayton 2008 78 and 59 for Slayton you've got a very wide range here the first thing that obviously jumps out is that the vast majority of these guys who are leading in running back receptions on the shanahan teams are borderline nfl players and then the kind of interesting note he does have kind of in the middle of his coaching career he has this section where it's a three-year span that the running backs actually do get targeted pretty reasonably You have Freeman, who is sort of a, I mean, not a big talent, but a guy who you would use in the receiving game. Carlos Hyde, actually one of the worst running backs in terms of starting running backs that we've had over a decade. Now, I say worst starting running backs. It's a huge accomplishment to get to the point where you can feature in my articles pretty consistently because your name always comes up as generating the most fantasy points under expectation. In order to do that, you've got to play a lot of snaps. Carlos Hyde was that guy, but 88 targets... Hide in a season there. That one, pretty weird. Then these numbers are all over the place. How does that make you feel going back and looking at the specific seasons about what we might see? The, I, I think to so a couple bits of
2: context. A couple of the really low seasons were in Washington. That's when Robert Griffin was young, and they were running a lot of read option and having a lot of success. And Alfred Morris was their lead back and was running for 1,600 yards. So it's not like they were not producing running back points in fact alfred morris was really good at that time that was one of the lowest sets of numbers but it was a very run-based team with griffin and alfred morris both running i think the quarterbacks played in on some of those teams you go back to like the steve slayton team though and you go back to um because steve slayton was a borderline nfl talent it turned out as well but had a very good year and you were making the case i think in the offseason that maybe some of shanahan's worked there under kubiak laid the groundwork for what became the
1: Arian Foster stretch right after Slayton in in a very similar role. Yeah. In 2010, the year after he leaves Houston, Arian Foster there for 2,220 yards from scrimmage, 18 touchdowns.
2: Yeah. And that's, you know, Kubiak is still there. They're still kind of running the same sort of scheme and a lot of probably the same offense. Foster had a nice little stretch to end the prior season when Shanahan was there. The, the Falcons team that, Texans team under Matt Schaub and the Falcons team under Matt Ryan. Similar quarterbacks to Garoppolo in the lack of mobility, I think. Robert Griffin, different. The Carlos Hyde year, I was trying to pull it up and remember which QB it was. I I don't think it was Nick Mullins. There was a QB for like a five-game stretch that threw to Hyde 44 times. So 44 of those, whatever you said, 80-something targets came in a five-game stretch. That was the year that they went. This year, they traded for Garoppolo midseason. They had like three different quarterbacks start five games. They went, you know, one in 11 and then won all the games at the end, the last like six under Garoppolo. But that stretch where Hyde got all those targets, I, I remember writing about it and stealing signals that year. I thought it was very quarterback driven. I can't remember which quarterback it was, whether it was Nick Mullins or, or – oh, no, sorry, it was C.J. Beathard. That's who it was. Nick Mullins wasn't even the quarterback at that on that team. The three quarterbacks that year were Garoppolo at the end. Brian Hoyer was the first one. Bethard played for a stretch in between. They had five, five and six starts. It was like they had three thirds to their season and Hyde's receiving exploded under the Bethard section of the year. So anyway, there's little nuances to all of that, I think it but I the biggest thing that I took away from that was Kyle Shanahan has been a coach for a very, very long time and has had different types of offenses. and we, are very attached to what they've done over the last two or three years in San Francisco. But even in San Francisco, when Bethard was the quarterback, the, you know the hide stuff did exist, right? So there's been various elements to how this offense would work. The receiving is a huge part of it. One thing I would say when I emphasize that McCaffrey is still performing reasonably well this year, despite only scoring three touchdowns in six games, 0.5 TDs per game, is like, OK, but it's not great for a, a you know a top 10 running back, especially You're talking about 8.5 over a, a 17 game sample. We want to see the elite quarter uh, running backs be scoring double digit touchdowns. They should be scoring more than one every other game, typically. Other than that touchdowns also being down, he only has caught 5.5 passes per game in his two biggest seasons. He was at 6.7, 7.3, basically right around that seven reception per game mark so his rec- receiving has already been down about a, a catch and a half per game in carolina which a lot of people are saying is san francisco better for him than carolina well yeah carolina has been throwing a lot of passes to him but as i mentioned they've been thrown to him behind the line of scrimmage and negative a dots not getting him out into the routes that he's actually really good at and also his overall receiving volume has been down from peak McCaffrey. plus the touchdowns have been down touchdowns is a whole nother discussion we got to get to Where does the receiving go in San Francisco? If you want to sit here and do the numbers and project it, which I think is maybe the wrong way to do it. But what I'm seeing is a lot of, he's not going to catch enough passes there. There's not going to be enough opportunity. And so I do want to address that head on. It's already down to 5.5. It's like basically a career low for who he is, the talent that Christian McCaffrey is. With a lot of different quarterbacks. He's had varying ranges of receptions per game. As a rookie 5.0, Last year in only seven games, and he left multiple of them really early, 5.3, even though you know two sevenths of those games, I think he played, two out of those seven games, I think he played uh, like 20% of the snaps. Still averaged per game, 5.3. 5.5 to me is like the lower end of what he has shown to be in a lot of different s- s- situations, different uh, head coaches, different quarterbacks. It's possible that that it goes down, right? And I think it's possible that it could be like four receptions per game or something. I have a hard time seeing like it's going to be three receptions per game or down in this range where like it was for Elijah Mitchell last year, I think sub three per game or maybe where it's been for, for Jeff Wilson. I mean, there's a reason they haven't been running Jeff Wilson on routes and it's Jeff Wilson is Jeff Wilson, right? Like it's different. Like we're we're talking about this already, but like, you, you know, they're acquiring a wide receiver here, but however you want to like look at that there is a trade-off and and one of the comments that i got a few times was is the efficiency gonna offset the opportunity drop off that he's not a workhorse anymore like he was in carolina he's gonna split with the debo role and elijah mitchell's gonna come back and factor in and whatever is gonna happen and again i think this is maybe the wrong way to look at it but even if you are looking at it that way number one He's still been incredibly efficient this year in a terribly broken offense. He's ran for 4.6 4. yards per carry. The two games early in the year where he had back-to-back 100-yard rushes, he wasn't even being used in the passing game yet, and it was so obvious they are going to run him up the middle every play. He still had back-to-back 100-yard rushing games. This is the part of McCaffrey that I think gets missed, is he's actually an above-average runner. He's a good runner. He's also an elite receiver. He is a full weapon. This is why we talk about him like he's on – a Marshall Falk trajectory for his career, 4.6 yards per carry. He's matched that number this year. His receiving efficiency has been down because again, he's finally seen a negative a dot. And some of those plays have just been gone blown up. His, his catch rate is way down from his typical uh, catch rates. Cause he's a very good receiver. His yards per target down. I think his receiving efficiency is going to improve. Even if the volume goes down, I think the, um, the rushing that he has shown to be able to be efficient. Even though Carolina has a decent offensive line, he's shown to be able to be efficient and particularly at creating plays once he gets into space. When, when a play is well blocked, do you hit the right hole and do you make the guys miss in the next level? On the second level, third level, can you make a big play out of it? Best example that was probably st- standard screenplay late this week in week six. He turns it into a 49 yard gain down to like the 10 yard line just by like carving up the field because that's that's what McCaffrey does in space he still has that and now you put him in the Shanahan scheme that can spring Jeff Wilson for a 32-yard touchdown in week five but like yeah maybe Jeff Wilson's good I don't want to criticize him it also was great for Elijah Mitchell last year who had a lot of long runs it was great for Tevin Coleman at, at points great for Raheem Mostert it was great for Debo rushing very efficiently even though Devo Samuel is an incredibly good talent, but you go back to all those teams. You go back to Alfred Morris and every Steve Slayton, every running back Kyle Shanahan's ever coached. He has elevated the efficiency of the rushing game through his scheme. And it's only gotten better. I mean, he's continued to add wrinkles and layers and that's something that smart X's and O's people have written a lot about. We've talked about it in the off seasons. I remember reading some great stuff in advance of the NFC championship that was talking about McVay and Shanahan's schemes in comparison and how they've both evolved off their, their duo block run schemes and what, I don't know if it's both duo, whatever. I think maybe duo is just what the the Rams are doing as they evolve things, but whatever. I don't understand run schemes, but I do know that is very interesting. And he is continuing to do creative stuff that people are writing about and talking about is very innovative. They've used a lot more motion in the recent seasons. He's a very good coach is the point. He's going to elevate a player's efficiency. McCaffrey has shown an ability to be an efficient runner even in a suboptimal offense that can't throw the ball and do any, I mean, so if if you want to tell me that the receptions are a huge issue, the part of it that I would say is I, the first thing that popped in my mind other than Marshall Falk, Sean was the priest Holmes here. So we were just talking about how good Dick Vermeule's offenses were. He was incredibly talented and incredibly well-suited to that offense, but it was a very impressively designed offense as well. You get a, a back like that, in an offense that creates rushing efficiency for everyone who's back there you're going to have 150 yard three touchdown rushing games like that's if you're telling me that McCaffrey's not going to catch enough balls then i like i still think he's going to be a, an incredibly good like the way i would describe when i talk about high value touches and they're so important to Christian McCaffrey is that Shanahan's one of the offenses that can make low value touches into high value touches rush attempts in Shanahan's offense, even though they're a low value at the 30-yard line, like last week with Jeff Wilson, can be a touchdown, right? And McCaffrey's going to have those types of plays in this offense. The question is just, does the receiving fall? Because if it falls, then maybe he's only a 20-point-per-game, 22-point-per-game guy. I still think there's potential for him to have, like, multiple two, three rushing touchdown games, if that's how they view him, as just a pure runner, With as good as he is. Again, this is the Priest-Holmes comp. But if they are using him intelligently as a pass receiver as well and they're splitting him out and they're doing a lot of the option routes out of the backfield and things that we want to see out of McCaffrey wherever he's playing, now you're talking about both sides of it. And now you are talking about Marshall Full I mean, this offense is going to score points. I don't think he has to get all the work in the green zone. People are worried about Debo's role in the green zone. Even if he gets a fraction of it. Rich Rebar had a great tweet last night. that The Panthers have had, I think it was only – like five plays inside the 10 all year. I mean, just some absurdly low number. I put it in my article. And San Francisco was tied for fifth in, in plays run inside the 10. And that's with them struggling in week one in, in a monsoon, you know, and then Lance getting hurt in week two and them having a really bad week two. They've gotten their offense going a little bit. It's going to get better now that you add Christian McCaffrey to it. They're going to run a lot of plays inside the 10. It doesn't really matter to me if they're using Debo in their some. If McCaffrey's not as heavily used inside the 10 as like, he would have been in Carolina or Derrick Henry is in Tennessee's offense because the Niners are now going to be a really good offense. It's going to run so many plays inside the 10 that his share of it ideally will be large for people who have Christian McCaffrey and for this whole argument. But even if it's smaller, the share, it's going to be more raw touches inside the 10 than in Carolina. And there's this potential that it's actually a pretty sizable role inside the 10 or share. And now we're talking about these two or three TD games I was just saying. I think his TD rate is going to just absolutely explode now and then you have the potential that if the receiving is there as well i mean talk me off of this uh
1: <laughs> this hype train i'm on well i love the hype train you're uh i'm not the right person to to talk you down from enthusiasm there are i think three or four really cool points there and then i want to bring us kind of around to how it will impact some of the other players which Number one, the receiving part is interesting. Another lens that we can look at it through would be expected points. We know that the rush EP plus receive EP gives you your total expected points. And when we're trying to find these legendary players, if you're going to have guys with the EP double-double, then they're sitting up in that range where they don't even have to be that efficient. But if they are efficient, then suddenly you get the huge seasons. If you could have an 11 rush EP, 11 receive EP, and then be plus four in fantasy points over expectation, then suddenly you're looking at 26 points per game. And that's where you really start to separate and hammer the rest of the league. 2017 to 2019, Christian McCaffrey is sitting at 11.7. For this season, he's at 10.8. So he's actually sustaining the receiving numbers from that portion of it pretty decently, maybe in a way that is surprising when you consider how bad the Panthers offense has been. I don't know that he necessarily can sustain at that level, but even if he stays at nine, it'll be really surprising for someone for McCaffrey's abilities to fall below that. Then he's going to be fine if the rush EP numbers jump, which I would expect them to do. And I think that your point about the efficiency is is really important. One of the things that has been so clear about 2022 and people want to know how do you adjust to the things that are happening, that was the big theme of our first two shows of the week. Having exposure to offenses that are creating points and having exposure to elite players are going to be two big elements of it. And maybe there are some elements within this new situation that are mildly contradictory in that the 49ers offense could mitigate a few elements of McCaffrey's strengths that maybe there are five or six other offenses out there that wouldn't do that. The floor is still very high because it's going to be an effective offense, as you mentioned. And, I mean, there are 10 to 15, maybe 20 offenses that would have been much worse. I mean, the first thing that I thought, you know, when I heard the trade was, I was disappointed. But the second thing that I thought was, I mean, thank goodness it's not the Rams or the Broncos, for example. I mean, those would have been much worse situations for him. Now, maybe the Rams would have figured it out because you have Sean McVay, you've got the good coach, and they also have a need there. But the Rams have a lot of problems right now. McCaffrey fits into what we want because he's so good. And I think that it's probably hard to really completely conceptualize just how much the Panthers have limited him. You talk about his ability as a runner, and we see a lot of these plays where they smash him into the line. And the first thing that you think to yourself is that's not the right way to use Christian McCaffrey because he's such a dynamic player in space. But one of the reasons that that the Panthers do that, and the 49ers will obviously do it to an extent as well, is that... McCaffrey's ability to slice through the holes, his ability at that first level is elite, but then once he gets through, his ability at the second level is even better. So he's a big play machine, especially if those opportunities are there. He's going to tear off, exactly like you said, a huge number of big plays, and then he's going to be effective in the red zone. So the rushing element here uh, should just be through the roof. We talked in the... And, And you were talking about the efficiency side. The one thing I would say about, especially his receiving
2: EP still staying high this year, kind of The way that that EP is accumulated can impact the efficiency, right? Because I was talking about how they've just been throwing him these screens behind the line of scrimmage. They've been really poor running back targets, as opposed to the past actually getting him out into some air yards and getting him some options that probably have impacted his receiving efficiency because it's just a smarter design. And and I want to go back to – what or not go back to because I haven't mentioned it yet, but one of the reasons I'm most excited is he's a very unique player and – Like I said, we we can get into a trap of assuming rational coaching. I think we can also get into a trap of immediately assuming irrational coaching because there are a lot of people that want to say immediately
1: that that, that they're going to use McCaffrey the way they use their other running backs. Like That would be very irrational. Well, they're not going to. And one of the things that jumps out to me when I go through that list of his backs from 2009 to 2021, the receiving backs. Now, as you mentioned, there are a few instances there where the lead rush back and the lead receiving back are different guys. And they probably... Well, not probably. They definitely broke that down in a way that was very effective for the offense. But you look at that list, and the main thing that jumps out to you is that Kyle Shanahan has not had good running backs.
2: Yeah, and he continues to draft bad ones. The point I was going to make, Sean, is (laughs) setting aside even the running backs, Kyle Shanahan, because we like to look at Trey Sermon and Tyrant Davis Price and everything they've done at running back the last couple years, and how he's not used his running backs, or at least the draft capital well. What about Debo Samuel? What about the guy that we talked about last year? all offseason drafting him in every single league because he was so talented. And then we watched Kyle Shanahan use him in a way that was so creative that we weren't even assuming, like getting close to predicting what Debo Samuel's role in 2021 specifically would look like. It's a big reason you're constantly talking about drafting talent and letting them be talented players. Shanahan showed us last year that he knows how to use a unique player in a uniquely effective way that made him incredibly efficient, made him a league winner. And no one wants to talk about like the, the, not no one, the people that want to break down the, you know, the 49ers running back receiving and how do we account for this? And how do we project it forward when they miss on a guy like Debo, they look back and go, well, there's no way we could have assumed that was going to happen. And that's the point. We're not, I'm not sitting here when I was talking about all of McCaffrey's rush stuff, even if the receiving goes down, I'm not trying to say that his receiving is definitely going to stay strong. I'm not trying to say that he's definitely going to be an elite runner or run for two or three touchdowns a game in this offense. What I'm saying is almost anything that is any that is other than sort of the worst case scenario, which is that they aren't using him a whole lot and everyone else is kind of in his way and Debo's playing a lot and all those things. Everything else is positive in this offense. If they do anything unique with him like they showed they could do with Debo it's going to hit in a way that we weren't able to necessarily predict and we have reason to believe because of Debo last year that Shanahan is going to stay up at night and come up with smart ideas and ways to to to
1: scheme the ball into Christian McCaffrey's hands i mean and i mean going back to sort of our offseason discussions about Jamal Charles and Barry Sanders and some of the teams where if they had that type of back what would they look like this year, this idea that a back with McCaffrey's ability couldn't hit in that 5.5 to 6 yards per carry range that you wouldn't get all the time, not even for for certain stretches. I mean, you're not going to, even Barry Sanders is not hitting 6 yards per carry every season, or Jamal Charles hitting 6 yards per carry every season, but you can definitely go through a long stretch where they do that. They have full seasons at that level. In this offense, with all of the space that's there, to have McCaffrey do it wouldn't be that surprising. The other thing that kind of came home to me as I was researching these questions before the show was just a reminder of how many obstacles they've had to deal with early this season. Because I was playing with the stealing signals tool on the site, which as many listeners know is named after Ben's amazing newsletter. It can help you break down a lot of these different elements And looking at the receivers and at just how much worse Debo and Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle are over the first six weeks of 2022 than they were from week 10 on from that sort of Brandon Ayuk breakout point on last season. And you're thinking, well, there are all types of things that are broken in this offense. And then you remember, as you mentioned, the monsoon game, the quarterback switch, Trent Williams goes out early in week three and is expected back. And you're talking about probably one of the most impactful offensive linemen in the NFL. And you have this situation, which I think is easy to not give full weight to because he's been the quarterback there for the 49ers for so long. But I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo is basically preparing to not do anything this year. He has a non-existent offseason And you listen to his comments about the offense, and he's basically like, yeah, I'm just kind of getting up to speed now. And I think that's frustrating if you're playing these guys as a fantasy manager. You've been the quarterback on this team for years, and I mean, we're headed into week seven, and you're just starting to to get going. But based on the things he was dealing with in the offseason with his own injuries and the direction the 49ers were going, this is not someone who has had a lot of practice with these guys going into the season. Right, so then I mentioned some of the specifics there. It was really cool to look at the end of 2021 because you have targets per route for Debo, Kittle, and Ayuk all above 20%. You'd love to see them higher for someone like Samuel, but because their yards per target are all above 10, and for Ayuk and Samuel, they're above 11. These guys come out and they have yard per route numbers all above 23 then you go into 2022 and you see that their target depths in terms of Kittle and Samuel have just absolutely cratered. And even though they're commanding targets at a very high rate still, the yards per target element of that equation has absolutely bottomed out to where you have these three elite or I mean, certainly Kittle and Samuel, and then Ayuk has had some very strong stretches in his career to where I think he's probably underrated. Now, he's coming off of a very big game, but an underrated player. These guys have dropped down to where they have very pedestrian yards per target numbers, and that is reflected in how this offense has gone. And I think that when you look at that, and you're thinking in terms of a broken offense, certainly one last week where they only score 14 points against the Atlanta Falcons, there's a lot of frustration. That seemed like a game they were going to win easily. Instead, they're not even that competitive in it. You throw those elements in, and then, especially I think if you're rostering any of these three receiving weapons, you have McCaffrey now into the mix, and it's sort of demoralizing because you're not going to trade for McCaffrey and have him substantially lose. Now, there are going to be some situations where Debo probably still takes some of those touches. There are going to be times when other backs work in, but... A running back in 2022 can only take so many touches, and you only want them to take so many touches, and especially if it's McCaffrey and he's had some of these injuries. The touches that he loses, I strongly believe, will be touches they didn't want him to take anyway. But it's almost inevitable that he wipes out some of the volume for those receivers, unless the offense now takes this huge leap forward, which I think there are some problematic elements to just say, oh, you've got another guy and you've moved forward in the season further and you've got a good head coach and these guys are good. Everything now we're off and running and you're going to be the best offense in the NFL. But there have been elements that they've been dealing with that you would expect to be at least mildly cleared up as we go forward. And if you see, I mean, people don't like the yards per target stuff, but as you talk about all the time, I and mean, it's a crucial part of the yards per route that people love. And when we look at that portion of it, if those guys jump back up to where they've been, not for you know one or two games, but over an expanded period of time, and again, we're thinking about it from a talent perspective as well, I don't know that it hurts them as much as was my initial reaction. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt. I, I don't think it does
2: either. And I don't think that is a limitation for McCaffrey because if those guys are hitting, I mean, they might be hitting for a lot of long touchdowns in, in individual games, but a lot of the time it's just going to mean moving drives forward and scoring more points, right? And then I do think, McCaffrey as lead back because lead running backs get the majority of the touchdown equity in most offenses. And especially in this particular San Francisco offense. I mean, I guess one pretty potential negative outcome would be like if they just use Jeff Wilson as their goal line back and that's, and he ends up scoring like six touchdowns the rest of the way. And that all comes straight out of McCaffrey's ledger. That would, that would suck. Maybe, maybe that happens. I don't know. But if they
1: score 25 rushing touchdowns, it's less of an issue.
2: Right. And, and, and Debo's I mean, going to take the some of offense two. that could. Yeah,
1: exactly. This is a, the offense that kind of offense that could. So I was kind of talking over
2: you, but Debo is a guy who will get some as well. Their quarterback's not going to run for many. So even if McCaffrey's getting like half of the rushing touchdowns and then a couple receiving touchdowns, you still expect him to score like 10 plus the rest of the way. I made the case that I think he's going to average about a touchdown per game the rest of the way, at least, and, and potentially more. And that's part of his floor, too. Because it's every, the rest of his career, it's been he didn't even need touchdowns because of the receiving and everything else. I think the touchdowns are now going to really elevate his floor. And then the ceiling is just so much higher, too, if the receiving is there. Everything you said, I agree with. In my article, thinking through the impact on the other players, the way that I laid it out was, number one, I think it's the it's worst for George Kittle. I don't think that means you go out and sell George Kittle for nothing. Uh, He's still going to have some really good games and some strong efficiency. I I mean, I wrote all this is kind of what you're describing, but I do think a lot of what Kittle's value in his best seasons was derived from was these intelligently designed plays in the short area where he could run after the catch. It feels like even last year, a little bit, I wrote this, the, the guy that kind of took the, interest of Kyle Shanahan's you know, unique play designs was Debo instead of Kittle. Prior, it was more Kittle. He would do a lot of interesting stuff with Kittle. Last year, it felt like it was more about how do we game plan to get the ball into Debo's hands? I think when they get McCaffrey, that's who's going to be the guy that he's going to focus on, right? And then Debo's the other guy. I think Kittle becomes not an afterthought, but we've already seen – I mean, this last week was a, an exciting game for Kittle. But the first few that he had been back, not very and We're going to see more games like weeks three through five where he didn't have big numbers. But as a tight end, he's still probably going to finish tight end five or tight end six because he's still going to have some good games and touchdowns and things are going to work positively for him from an efficiency standpoint.
1: Yeah, Kittle's injury is one I didn't even
2: mention, which was another obstacle that they've had to overcome. Right. He missed the first two games. but in terms of game planning for who you're going to get the ball to and all of these things, they're going to have some plays for Kittle. I think he becomes less of a focus because they also love how much he provides them as a blocker. And they've kind of shown that so far this year. I the other one that gets lost sometimes, I think, in their game plans. And then it's just sort of the vertical threat that can hit for the big games like he had in week six. I think he gets lost a little bit more because I think Debo's role does actually extend to more of a receiver downfield stuff. We've seen that kind of go back and forth where a lot of it's around the line of scrimmage, then, then he's running more routes downfield. I don't think this just means Debo's not going to do anything else around the line of scrimmage, but I do think adding Christian McCaffrey means some more of those design jet motion tip passes to Debo or whatever you're doing runs to Debo don't get called for Debo. They, a few of those now get called for Christian McCaffrey. And, and, and to offset that, that you use him down the field more. Right, and so that I think negatively impacts Ayuk down the field. So I, basically, the way I'm viewing it is this offense is now going to be a Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel centric offense in terms of who they're calling plays for when they're when they're thinking play or not play in the play design and they're drawing something up to get the ball in someone's hands. I think it's going to be those two guys mostly. Kittle and Ayuk are still going to hit and be efficient, like you were describing. Their efficiency is set to rebound anyway. I think they're going to be very efficient as the third and fourth weapons and what will basically be a very concentrated top four. But um, I, I do think it's maybe like, you know, now I'm probably being too exact in that, but that's how I think there's one way it can work out for people who are like, how does this all work out? And McCaffrey has this grade of production and what does that mean? I think the whole, you know, the rising tide lifts all the boats to some degree, but also to some degree, it's a n- little bit of a knock for for Kittle and Ayuk's consistency week to week. I mean, McCaffrey's, the running back, he's going to get touches every week. He's going to be game plan for maybe, I mean, maybe not this first week or whatever. I don't even know how much he'll play or if he'll play. We talked about that, but they play at the Rams in week eight, one week from now. They're playing, they're hosting the Chiefs this week. They probably want to play McCaffrey if they can, but then they're not going to be at the Rams before their bye week. And I think they're going to turn McCaffrey loose in
1: that match if they want to beat the Rams. I mean, that's it. A- yeah, you, you need to win that game. One of the things that they've done here is say, look, I mean, we've had a very disappointing start to the season, but so has the rest of the NFC West, as opposed to being this elite division, as many people thought it would be to start the year. It's actually one of the most winnable out there. If we make a move and we press forward, we're going to be the favorites and maybe the favorites by a wide margin. And It's a great move too, in terms of the aggressiveness kind of thinking multiple steps ahead, I think, because I if you're the 49ers, you have to consider the fact that I mean, there's a, a pretty strong likelihood that you lose this game to the Chiefs and you're three and four. But even at three and four, you've got a great path to winning the NFC West. And maybe even the number two
2: seed in the NFC. I mean, I'm looking at, I mean, you have the Vikings at five and one. The, there's no other team in the NFC outside of the NFC East that is better than three and three right now where the Niners sit. The Vikings come back at all. You might have the two seed. Then you have not just home field advantage in the wild card round, but you do get the home field advantage in the second round, which the two seed still matters to some degree because you stay at home for both of the first two games. And we if the see the number seed, one seed get upset. And the that's one seed gets upset, the you, might, game. Right, you might be And that's what happened last year. The, the Packers got upset, um, not necessarily meaning the, the two seed ran all the way, but that can obviously happen. If the Vikings come back at all, who the NFC South Division winner, I mean, maybe that winds up being the Bucs, but they don't look like they're gonna be a, a huge win-loss record team. They're three and three right now. The Packers sitting at three and three, the Vikings at five and one leading the North. The the winner of the West could be the two seed is, is my point. I mean,
1: there's a lot in front of them, not just in the NFC West. I mean, again, you look at some of these numbers and you look at the usage and the first two shows of the week again talked about how teams are forcing the opponent to go underneath, but the 49ers have been such an extreme version of that sometimes talking about depth of target can get a little bit misleading because these guys, when they jump, you're going to have that corresponding offset where if you're being targeted further down the field, then mostly what's happening is you're losing targets, but Kittle and Samuel could easily jump three to five yards per target the rest of the season and not be in a situation where that's actually costing them targets because of how low they've been so far. They're going to be able to use McCaffrey to take some of those routes and some of those looks, but the plays that are going to, disappear from the offense are the super inefficient plays. They're not necessarily the aggressive plays or the targets to Samuel and Kittle in these ranges. They're more valuable to them. And so from all those perspectives, I, yeah, I'm. It's going
2: to be so fun to watch these guys. Like I'm not, I'm not a 49er fan by any means, but it's going to be so fun to watch Kyle Shanahan over the next few months. I'm excited. From the other
1: question player. that I wanted to ask you, I, I found myself getting pretty <laughs> enthusiastic especially in superflex, about jimmy garoppolo when you think about where quarterback scoring is i mean you suddenly have to really yeah. wake him up from the bottom of the qb2 tier to really the bottom of the qb1 tier yep and suddenly this guy is very playable if you don't have one of the three or four studs yep i mentioned that in my article too that like you look at Andy dalton last night he had a
2: horrible game with those interceptions but He throws four touchdowns in the end. When your team scores points, you you sometimes wind up throwing four touchdowns. He throws the short one to Taysom Hill at the the goal line. He had a very nice deep ball. Jimmy Garoppolo is going to have some three, maybe not four touchdown games, but some three touchdown games because this offense is going to score a lot of points. He's going to throw some TDs to Christian McCaffrey. McCaffrey can obviously score in the passing game as well. He's shown that all throughout his career. Garoppolo is going to suddenly be a QB that is is piloting a very – High scoring offense is, is the way that I'm seeing it, and, and you're gonna you're gonna have a when you're in a mobile quarterback. We, we talk about this. You need we well, you need the yardage, and you might not necessarily always have huge yardage numbers, but you need the TDs too to run run hot for you. He's he's a guy that immediately looks like he could be in contention for not the most passing TDs the rest of the year. He's probably not gonna be right there with like Mahomes or whoever, but a top five passing TD
1: number from here going forward, right? Very much so. I- I'm excited for this team. Anytime that you get a lot of talent on a team with an elite coaching staff, even if maybe that's not one of your teams from a reality football perspective, it's a lot of fun to follow how they go. Then I'll have more on this in my Zero RB playbook today. As mentioned, you wrote a fantastic, fantastic article that came out right before we started recording. People, if you haven't subscribed to Stealing Signals yet, you'll want to jump in to find... Ben's reaction to the Christian McCaffrey trade. We'll also have some notes in there about how it influences some other running games. Chuba Hubbard, Deontay Foreman, Then my enthusiasm for week seven is now very high with this trade. And with one of the most fun Thursday night football games, we had a team score 42 points yesterday.
2: Well, I mean, after our two conversations this week, I was excited for today's conversation. Cause I wanted to talk to you about how you got me excited again i mean this the the whole idea of like even some of these teams that are not performing well where we get to have fun trying to build these fantasy teams i don't know i was really uh encouraged the rest of the day wednesday after we recorded and on thursday and i was excited to talk with you on friday and have this positive attitude then this trade happened and then there's even more to be excited about but um
1: things are gonna get get fun in the nfl now Uh, things are things are looking up sean (laughs) they are they are. So week seven should be fantastic. We're rooting for all of your teams, all of the Stealing Bananas listeners out there. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. Football is so fun. That's why you're here with us, and we really appreciate that. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, it has been Gretchen follow at Yards for Gretch. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals. Again, the CMC article. So cool. You want to check that out. And also sign up for Sealing Lines, Ben's awesome betting project with Dalton Cates. We'd love to have all of you over at Rotoviz, Dave Cabin's wide receiver cornerback article coming out today. We have Connor O'Driscoll helping you win the underdog battle royale underdog with a lot of cool weekly contests. If you want to do some quick drafts, that is a fantastic format. You can use the code Rotoviz to give 100 percent deposit match when you sign up. Yeah, so many people doing so many cool things at a lot of different places. The fantasy community is awesome. We appreciate having all of you here. If you want to leave us a rating and review or a comment on YouTube, those things help us with the algorithm. And until next week, good luck in the excited.